The Buddha's entire 45 years of teaching, as you probably know, was all about the theme of suffering and the ending of suffering. Always these complementary pairs. Sometimes the Buddhism has gotten a reputation for being a gloomy religion because of its emphasis on the dukkha aspect. But when you listen to the discourses of the Buddha, he almost always pairs dukkha with the end of dukkha and points as often to the liberated qualities of mind as to the struggling qualities of mind. So in our practice also, we want to keep both these halves in mind. However, the fact is that near the start of a long retreat of this six-week period for those who have arrived, the predominant experience tends to be on the dukkha side. And it may not stay that way. For those of you who have been here for uh, seven weeks now, you may be moving a lot into the positive and blissful and liberated experiences from time to time. <laughs> but dukkha has probably still not gone completely out of your, uh, your vision. So I hope this will be useful as well. As we go on in the second half, we'll talk more and more about the beautiful qualities of mind through qualities like the spiritual faculties, the factors of enlightenment, the Brahma-viharas, and so on. But tonight, I'm going to focus a little more on the dukkha aspect of things. When I contemplate life in the world, and I think about the magnitude of suffering and distress that's happening, it seems very complex. We can look on a global level, the international conflicts and wars that are going on. We can look at a national level and the a number of people living in poverty and uh, unemployment uh, being so high. We look on the community level and we know friends who've lost their homes or lost their jobs. We look on the family level. There's conflict and stress. And yet, when we come into retreat, it all begins to seem very simple. Our own personal suffering becomes pretty straightforward. And I've been struck by this a number of times. It seems to me that once I start to look at my own situation, and Buddhism always encourages us to do that, you might say to take responsibility for the state of our own minds and the possibility of freedom of our own minds, when I look from that point of view, what uh, can I do to solve the problem of my own suffering, it starts to seem simple. Because it seems to me that in retreat there are basically three things I suffer from. And this may be true for you as well. You can check and see. One is body pain. It's a frequent visitor because we're sitting long periods, long hours without moving, and often that accumulates some degree of holding and tension that becomes uncomfortable. You sit long enough and any sitting will become uncomfortable. So that's the first thing that I always find myself dealing with is body pain. The second thing is mental pain. Whenever I sit, I go through a whole range of emotions, some of them pleasant and some of them not so pleasant. So I encounter in my practice, as in my daily life, the forces of wanting and loneliness and fear and sadness and regret and anxiety, um, self-judging, judging of others, anger, irritation, and so forth. Part of our whole human experience. In addition to the beautiful states, but these difficult states still come. And then the third form of uh, suffering I experience on retreat is unique to meditators, I think. So isn't it nice to know we have our own special brand of suffering? And it's the suffering that comes from wanting the meditation to go well. You know, when, when you were an untaught worldling, as the Buddha said, did you worry if your mind wandered? Did you worry if you couldn't keep it on a chosen object for 10 minutes at a time or one minute at a time? No, that wasn't a problem. But here, quite often during the days on retreat, I find myself going, why can't the mind stay a little more settled? Or I want more stability. I want more experience of concentration. So I suffer from wandering mind, restlessness, lack of stability, lack of concentration. 
a unique occupational hazard for us. <clears throat> but these are the only three things that I notice. That's it. And when I'm in the retreat mode and I start to sort it out that way, then I realize, oh, to make my peace with life, I have to make my peace with these three areas. And that's really it. That solves my problem of suffering while I'm in retreat. If we can solve our problem of suffering while we're in retreat, we'll find that when we go back into the world, we know much better how to solve the problems of suffering that we find ourselves in, whether the suffering is from us or from others. Because when we understand the roots, we're able to liberate them more easily in our own mind and we're able to deal more skillfully with the suffering of others. So tonight in the talk, I want to focus specifically on this second type of retreat suffering, which is the suffering of difficult mental states. I want to talk, how to talk about how to work with the difficult emotions that arise for us, which arise in retreat as well as in our daily life. When you look across the world as a whole, you can see how much havoc these states play in the world. You can look across uh, the West today and see virtually an epidemic of depression, it seems to me. The, um, the number of people who are reporting it uh, to their doctors and receiving treatment just seems to be growing and growing. It says a lot about our, our culture and our modern world. We suffer from anxiety and stress from the pace of our life and people feel that as a daily impact in their bodies and hearts and minds. We often feel loneliness and isolation in this disconnection from a sense of community, of those old relationships that have broken down. And we ourselves, being part of this culture, are subject to all these. When we don't understand them, when we don't know how to release them, then we often feel we're at a victim we become victims of these states of mind. Our, our own mind um, holds us hostage and inflicts pain on us. Because this is a source of so much suffering for us individually and around the world, it's also a pointer to some of the greatest openings of Dharma practice. And I've, I personally believe that Vipassana practice in the kind of direct application of mindfulness to our experience has this immense potential for healing in the world. When we start to shine the light of emotion on, uh, sorry, the light of mindfulness on these difficult emotions, they start to open up. And we start to see a possibility of liberation in relation to them. Maybe not necessarily the final liberation or the completeness of liberation, but ways that can bring a lot more freedom into our own lives, both in retreat and at home. So one of the, I think, most immediate benefits of Vipassana practice is greater facility in working with our emotions uh, where they are difficult. This also encourages us, really, it's an invitation to open up and explore the whole range of things that go on in our mind. So often in, in life, you know, you can see how people close down, how we've all closed down to our emotional range because some parts of the territory have gotten frightening. We haven't been able to deal with the intensity of some of the emotions that came for us Often in, in adolescence, we open to things that we're never quite able to integrate at that stage of life. And by not being able to integrate them, then we move into adulthood with some limitations, some closure, some holding, and unresolved issues. Through meditation, we can start to explore this whole range and bring greater understanding to it. This is from Pema Chodron, the wonderful nun who's the abbot of uh, Gampo Abbey in Nova Scotia. In all kinds of situations, we can find out what is simply by studying ourselves in every nook and cranny, in every dark and bright spot, whether it's murky, creepy, grisly, splendid, spooky, frightening, joyful, inspiring, peaceful, or wrathful. 
we can just learn about the whole thing. There's a lot of encouragement to do this and meditation gives us the method. This is the key. The tool of mindfulness gives us the method to look at every area of our mind, every corner, whether it's a beautiful corner or a frightening and dark corner. If we leave those areas unexplored out of uh, some holding back, some reservation, some fear of what we might find there, we'll always live in, in a bit of tension with ourselves, a bit divided. But meditation offers us the possibility to go into the whole of the psyche and in a way make peace with what's there and in doing that integrate our being to a degree we haven't been able to before. This is an important part of our journey. I think it's quite refreshing to watch children deal with their emotions because they're not scared of them. Children will just go right into the normal emotions of daily life. They'll be playing happily together and you'll hear all the laughter and joy and giggling. Something will come up and there will be some, some anger or some conflict and they'll go right into that and yell at each other and want to bump heads. and. Then five minutes later, they'll have worked that out and then they'll be playing happily again, quite peaceful or calm. It doesn't, uh, they don't hold back and the emotions don't get stuck. And that's as long as children are brought up with a degree of, just a degree of respect. When children are uh, severely neglected, uh, mistreated or abused, then the emotions can become over overwhelming too much, too much for them to understand or handle, and then the closure happens. But if they're brought up with a, a consistent degree of respect and trauma doesn't enter, then there's, there's this basic openness and lack of fear, which is quite inspiring. We can learn that also. So we see in watching children that in order to have that sense of openness and freedom, we don't have to get rid of these difficult states that does not become the aim of our practice in the near term. In the long term, it is said that that happens. For uh, practitioners at advanced stages of development, um, sense desire and aversion are said to be eliminated from the mind at a certain stage of awakening. And then all the, uh, all the other impurities of mind are eliminated at full awakening, the final stage. But at our stage, because we're probably not going to hit the third stage on this retreat, we can learn a lot of freedom in opening to what we've got. So when I first came to meditation, I really hoped that it was going to let me get rid of these states, that I thought enlightenment was going to do that. And I couldn't wait to get enlightened so I could be rid of this kind of pain. Now I see it the other way around. I, I don't believe that enlightenment is possible until we make our peace with these states, until we achieve some degree of wisdom with them. This is again from Pema Chodron. The, base, the basic obstacle is that we don't like what is now and therefore wish it would go away fast. But what we find as practitioners is that nothing ever goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. If we run a hundred miles an hour to the other end of the continent in order to get away from the obstacle, we find the very same problem waiting for us when we arrive. So this again is the invitation, whatever the form of uh, emotional difficulty is for you, and it can vary a lot from person to person. For some people, the dominant difficulty is wanting. For others, the dominant one is anger. For others, it's fear. For others, confusion. For others, self-judgment. Whatever it is for you that is most up, then that is a place to inquire into, to explore, and to learn about. And there is no other way than diving in and finding out about it. This is the invitation of meditation. Just to set this within the classical foundation, 
what we're talking about is in the included in the third foundation of mindfulness as described in the Satipatthana Sutta. This is the foundation that focuses on what's called citta. First foundation is body, which includes breath. Second foundation is feeling tone, which I think was introduced in the instructions this morning by Carol. The third foundation is uh, called citta. It can be translated either as mind or heart. I'll talk a little about that. The fourth foundation is called dhammas, and I think of this as the, um, the principles of nature, learning about the principles that govern us. So the talk tonight is focusing on the third foundation, described by this term citta, which is often translated uh, as mind, but could just as well be translated as heart. If you ask a Western person, where is your mind? We're likely to point here. If you ask someone in Thailand, where is your citta? They will point here, the center of the chest. Because it's considered in Buddhist teachings that the base of mind is in the center of the chest. It includes emotional as well as cognitive activity. In the teachings of the Buddha, there is not this kind of clear distinction in using the word mind that we often might make in the West when we talk about the mind in relation to or as opposed to or compared to the heart. So this word citta encompasses both. It encompasses our thinking faculties. It encompasses our emotional faculties as well. So um, this, was, this was brought home uh, also in uh, India through a meeting with the Dalai Lama. You probably know that um, over the last 10 years or so, maybe 15, a group of scientists have been meeting annually with His Holiness the Dalai Lama to explore the overlap or to share perspectives between Buddhism and Western science. The Dalai Lama is very interested in this dialogue. And what's emerged from it uh, is a series of, of research studies that are starting to validate in Western empirical terms the benefits that come from Buddhist meditation, both uh, physical benefits, mental benefits, emotional benefits, and so forth. So these studies may become the way that the rest of the West starts to believe what we've been trying to tell them for a long time. But see, they're not so interested in listening to meditators because if we believe in a religion, we're already biased. We're not trustworthy, you see. So the scientists who are impartial and objective reporting on it <laughs> will convince a lot of people that we could never reach. So I'm very appreciative of, of their efforts. One of the foremost researchers uh, is at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. His name's Richie Davidson. He's a longtime Vipassana practitioner, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> He has been working with the Dalai Lama for a number of years now through this organization called Mind and Life. And at one point, the Dalai Lama asked him to bring over some of his equipment to India because His Holiness wanted to show the rest of his monks what this stuff was about. Well, a lot of Richie's experiments were done in MRI machines, and that's a little too much equipment to transport to Dharamsala. So what he did was take over these uh, caps that they have created out of strips of leather that are lined with electrodes. And the electrodes come in contact with the scalp, and there are quite a number of them, maybe 50 electrodes running down, uh, implanted in these leather strips in the cap that the subject puts on, and they're connected by wires to a computer that reads the output from each electrode. So they can measure where brain activity is happening in a reasonably precise way. It's not as good as an MRI, but it's reasonably precise when subjects are looking at different pictures or engaging in different meditative exercises such as generating compassion and so forth. So Richie carried over a few of these electrode leather caps and um, put them on put one on to demonstrate to the monks how the experiment was being carried out and explain the purpose of the research, to measure brain activity so that uh, scientists could understand what was happening in the mind and 
meditators and then share that with the world. His Holiness was up on the platform with Richie and there were about 500 monks in this large auditorium. And Richie said that uh, when he finished the presentation, all the monks just broke up laughing. <laughs> and just 500 of them just all cracked up at the same time. And he assumed that it was because he looked so silly with the electrode cap on. But that wasn't the reason. One of the monks, in explaining it, spoke up and said, this is so funny. You're trying to investigate the mind by measuring the brain when everybody knows that the mind is here. <laughs> and he pointed to the center of his chest. So then we, uh, Richie told us this story uh, on a retreat some months ago. So uh, we had a discussion with him. Uh, how can we measure what's happening here? Because there's not quite the same kind in the heart center. Because there's not the same kind of electrical activity as is going on in the brain. So that will be, an, you know, that be the frontier of neuroscience to measure what is happening around the heart center. That'd be fascinating. So this third foundation of mindfulness is looking into the whole area of heart and mind. And I'd like to read you the, uh, the way this is introduced in the Satipatthana Sutta. The Buddha, in giving these instructions of the third foundation, puts it this way. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind, that is citta, as citta? Here, a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. She understands mind affected by hatred as mind affected by hatred, and mind unaffected by hatred as mind unaffected by hatred. He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. This is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind as mind. So a couple of things to notice in this description. First, the term understands. This is our old friend pajanati, which we also encountered in the relationship to the breath, understanding a long breath or a short breath. Or we could just use the word knowing. So again, this concept of knowing or understanding comes through again here. The second thing to mention is that in the instructions, the Buddha is focusing on these qualities we've been talking about of greed, hatred, and delusion, or the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. So we see again that these three are the critical roots of unwholesome states. The absence of them are the roots of all the wholesome states. It's quite interesting to look in this way because you can take any suffering state of mind and kind of analyze what's the component in it of greed, what's a component of aversion, what's a component of confusion. Because every unwholesome state is a mix in some way of those three. Then you can look at wholesome states of mind, beautiful states, and see what's the mixture of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. So this is the exploration of the realm of citta and uh, we'll be looking particularly tonight at the difficult or suffering uh, aspects of this. I want to talk a little bit about the vocabulary that I'll be using, not just tonight, but uh, throughout the retreat. A, a lot of us share this vocabulary, so uh, I want to introduce it early. We often talk about citta as encompassing moods, emotions, and states of mind. Uh, I'll use these three terms um, at different points tonight. So I want to distinguish what, what I mean by them. Other people may, may use them a little differently. For me, emotion is something that's a strong feeling, a very obvious and clear, strong feeling. Happiness, sadness, joy, fear, loneliness, anxiety, so forth. Mood is, is something that has an emotional quality. It has a heart tinge to it but it's often more subtle, um, not quite as pronounced, not as strong, more like a kind of cloud in the background that pervades everything that you might miss if you weren't just tuning into it. You might say, oh, I woke up this morning and I had a kind of mood of melancholy. 
just feeling kind of melancholy. It's not a big deal, but it's kind of there in the background in a pervasive way. Or you might go for a walk and the sun is out and you've just been sitting and quiet and you just feel a mood of tenderness. You look around and everything just seems very open and vulnerable and there's a, there's a tender relationship to it. It's not going to knock you over the head, but it's a coloring that's in the mind at that time. Then there's this more generic term that I'll use often called states of mind. And this is the broadest term. For me, states of mind include moods and emotions, but it also includes the more subtle uh, qualities of mind that develop through meditation. So qualities like mindfulness, calm, equanimity, uh, peace, wise attention. These are factors of mind that we can notice, that we can appreciate, that are very wholesome, but they don't have a particularly emotional quality to them. Their affect is, is quite neutral, but they are very wholesome at the same time. So uh, states of mind is the broadest of these. It will include moods, emotions, as well as refined meditative states. The term in the technical term uh, that came out of the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, that you'll often hear is mental factors. And the Abhidhamma, which was a, a, a post, a work after the Buddha's lifetime, is compiled in the few hundred years after the Buddha's death, um, identified 52 different factors of mind that could arise. And it said, that's all there could be. There are no more. And every other one is a combination of these 52. Well, life has gotten more complicated since then, so you know there are probably at least 152 now. But at any rate, there's a lot. There's a wide range. So in working with difficult emotions, there are two things that need to happen. One is, uh, compared to when we begin practice, for most of us, there needs to be an attitude shift and it is toward greater acceptance. This is the kind of first move that we need to make in relation to these states. We need to have more willingness to let them be just the way they are. The second thing that needs to happen is we need to bring greater understanding of the states in. And we do that just by observing them. That's the beauty of mindfulness. As we simply watch these states arise, persist, we learn how they're uh, given to arise, how they're sustained, and how they pass away. That understanding is ultimately what frees us from their grip because we start to see their kind of mechanical nature. You know, it's like a button is pressed and one of these reactive formations comes up. And once it's activated, it has its own particular dance. We learn its steps. We learn how they impact us, and the mystery starts getting taken out of it. When the mystery gets taken out, they can't enchant us in the same way. They can't delude us or confuse us or mislead us. So the wisdom aspect that comes simply from the observation is the most important piece. But in order to activate it, we have to open with acceptance first. So these are the, these are the two steps, accepting attitude and greater understanding. So let's talk about this in a little more detail, kind of practically how to work. When one of these states comes up, the first step is to know what it is that we're feeling. So to name it is very helpful, to name the emotion you're feeling, if you can. As Annie said the other morning in response to a question, if you don't know the name, don't worry about it. You can name it as, uh, that's just fine. If you happen to recognize what it is, then you can name it and that will be a little bit helpful. But just to know that something is present and you're feeling it, that's the first step. That's harder than it sounds, even when we're pretty mindful. I'll give you a little example. I was practicing here for a six-week period some years ago. I was about two weeks into the retreat and I'd settled in and I, I was pretty present. After the 8.15 sit, I got up from the hall, walked out to go to my walking place, which was down in the grassy area below the meditation hall. 
walked out the back door and I was very with my steps. You know, I was aware of lifting, moving, and placing with each step. Got partway down the hill, I looked out to my walking path, there was someone there. That should not have happened. <laughs> because I had been walking there every walking period for those two weeks. And I thought, don't they know that's my walking path? I was still very mindful, lifting, moving, placing. And as I started to walk down the hill, I was trying to figure out what had happened. Did I cut in front of them in, in the breakfast line this morning? Is this their revenge? Are they trying to play mind games with me? And I was lifting, moving, placing. I was really with my steps. But in, inwardly, I was fuming because it seemed, at the, at the most charitable, it seemed very undeveloped of them. Nonetheless, I walked down to my walking area, found another patch of grass, which much to my surprise worked just as well, <laughs> did my walking meditation, and I was about 30 minutes into it when I noticed I'm angry. I had continued to kind of go through all the blaming thoughts and the kind of figuring it out thoughts, but I had never made the notice, oh, anger. So as long as I couldn't recognize that that's what I was feeling, I was just caught in it. I was caught in the story. I believed what I was thinking. I had no doubt that they were wrong and I was right. And that uh, angry tone colored my whole world. The identification with the experience was so strong, there was no space to liberate it. Once I could recognize, oh, I'm under the sway of anger, then I could work with it because I know how to work with anger. I knew by then. I needed to feel it in my body. I needed to recognize it in my mind. I needed to look at the kinds of thoughts that arose and how they impacted the anger. And within a few minutes, it was gone. I was able to release it. Until I could recognize it, there was no possibility of releasing it because I was just glued to it. So this process of noticing what we're feeling is a very powerful step of freedom. Interesting, one of these other research studies that's very interesting, they, uh, the scientists were working, I think these were uh, psychologists, were working with subjects who had problems with anger management. And they've tried many, many techniques to get people to inhibit their uh, responses when anger becomes activated in them because, you know, a lot of people will just lash out verbally or bodily and lose their temper and it gets them into a lot of trouble. They've tried many, many techniques of this inhibition of the anger response and some have been more, some have been less successful. In this experiment, the only technique they used with the subjects was to have them say when they were getting angry, this is anger. That was it, nothing else. And they had them practice this for two weeks. Didn't give them any other instructions, any other advice. And then after two weeks, they looked at the results. And they said that the subjects who had practiced this way had significantly good success in inhibiting their anger you know, in comparison to many other methods that had been tried. This was a strikingly successful method. This is nothing more than mindfulness, simple mindfulness. Knowing what we're feeling, even if we can't put a word to it, but just recognizing this is the emotion that I'm feeling right now, create some space around it. And then we don't have to blindly act it out. And that space, I, I believe, is created by the intelligence that comes with mindfulness. So we add a new, um, piece of information to our experience of the moment. Oh, there's anger present. So that's a wisdom aspect that's coming to bear in the moment. And now as we reflect on it, we realize there's not just anger, there's anger plus mindfulness. So a very wholesome state of mind has entered into the moment, this recognition of what our experience is. This wholesome state of mind gives us the space then to make a wise choice about what to do in relation to the anger. So what should we pay attention to in working with 
um, in working with these emotions, there are really three areas that uh, we need to look at. How it feels in the body, how it feels in the mind, and how it's uh, playing out through our thoughts. If you can kind of bring all three of these under the umbrella of mindfulness, you will really have encompassed the emotion with mindfulness. You'll, and this will also lead you to understand its working in quite a full way. So first of all, taking a look in the body. So when anger is present, when any strong emotion is present, there will be some kind of impact in the body. It will feel differently because of that strong emotion. So take a look. With anger, there's usually a lot of contraction. There's often an upsurge of energy and a tension around the neck and shoulders. Second place to look is the mind. Now sometimes this is a little hard for people to understand because we, if we feel the emotion in the body, it feels like the emotion is the bodily sensation. Oh, anger, that's that contraction in the neck. But what we want to do as meditators is to understand what part of that experience is rooted in the physical nature, and that is the contraction element, the tension. What part of the experience is rooted in the mental nature? And what we'll find is that every emotion has a mental coloring. Every mood has a color that it brings into the mind, a flavor, a taste, whatever you want to call it. You know that the flavor of joy is different than the flavor of fear, is different than the flavor of anger. So we want to be able to identify that mood or emotion just by becoming familiar with its flavor, or at least to be able to look and taste it, see what that is in the mind. Of course, as we experience the emotion, the mind and the body are so closely coupled, we feel it as a unitive experience. But we can understand part of that experience comes from the side of the mind and another part comes from the side of the body. It's a little bit like if you have coffee with milk and you drink it, then there's only one flavor, this cafe au lait flavor. But if you understand what it's like to drink black coffee and you understand what it's like to drink milk, you understand how that flavor gets created out of the two sides. So it's just like that. The body is a piece and the mind is the piece. We want to explore both of them. Sometimes, there will be times in your meditation when the body sensations are so light that in a mood so subtle that you won't register a lot of impact in the body. And then you want to find it just from the flavoring in the mind, the color in the mind, and we can do that. The third thing to look at is thoughts. So we take a look at the mental quality of anger and we find a kind of fiery or burning quality. And then we look at the thoughts. In my example where someone was in my walking path, the thoughts were all about they're wrong and I'm right. They shouldn't be there because it's really my walking path. As long as I kept thinking those thoughts, I kept propping up the anger. When I stop thinking those thoughts, the anger fades. So this is something else we want to really understand about emotions. All the afflictive emotions are sustained by thinking. Let go of the thoughts and the afflictive emotion fades. So basically, left alone, any emotion will pass. That's why it's safe to open to. Emotions don't have the ability to sustain themselves forever. They only get that by our resistance. When we try to suppress an emotion out of fear, then it prolongs. If we open to it and allow it, it will arise, persist, and pass away. That's the nature of emotion. So another way to think about this um, factor of thoughts is that we create kind of a storyline around the emotion. So the storyline with my anger was I was right and they were wrong. If you look at anger in general, that's what it, generally what it's founded on, 
a storyline of I'm right and they're wrong. As long as we keep going over those thoughts and believing them, we sustain the anger. Cut through the storyline, let go of your belief in the storyline, and the emotion will fade. So let's look at a few other um, emotions. Desire. Actually, let me ask you something. In my observation of my practice and a lot of meditators' practices, there are four big emotions that everybody needs to learn to relate to. It might be like the primary colors of a palette. These are kind of primary colors of our emotional palette. I'm going to add a fifth after we found these four. Now, the Buddha made a list of the five hindrances. Very, very helpful in terms of meditation and different obstacles. But I want to talk specifically about these difficult emotions or afflictive emotions and make another point. For an afflictive emotion to be sustained, it has to rely on a sense of time. Afflictive emotions cannot endure with a completely present moment orientation. They can only endure if we generate around them or with them a sense of time. That's not true of beautiful states of mind. Mindfulness can exist purely in the present moment. Love, compassion, happiness, joy, purely in the present moment. One of my teachers likes to use this wonderful phrase, happiness for no reason. Not because we're counting our chickens or storing up goods or hoarding anything. Happiness for no reason. We've let it all go and happiness is just there. Doesn't need time. Afflictive emotions do. So I want to suggest that afflictive emotions are born out of past and future, and that'll be one axis. The other axis is pleasant and unpleasant. Because you talked with Carol this morning about feeling tone, you know that feeling tone of pleasant and unpleasant is the root of a lot of grasping, a lot of preoccupation. So past and future will be one axis, pleasant and unpleasant will be another. Let's explore what emotions come out of those four quadrants that we've created. So what happens if there has, we'll start with, uh, unpleasant, no, start with pleasant and past, okay? Let's say there was an experience in the past that was very pleasant. The implication is because it was in the past, it's not here today. So very pleasant experience in the past. What's a primal kind of emotion that comes up around that? Somebody said sad, loss and sadness. This is one of our primary responses to life. We had something beautiful. We had something lovely. We lost it. We're stricken by grief, sadness, loss. So that's the first of the big ones that we need to relate to. What about something very pleasant in the future? What, what? <laughs> Desire, isn't it? Something very pleasant that's going to happen only in the future, there's a wanting of it. Second primal emotion. What about something unpleasant that happened in the past? And I'm going to uh, modify this a little because I'm going to lead you. Um, connected with another person. Anger. Somebody did something unpleasant to us, we hold that with anger. Third primal emotion. Something unpleasant that we think is going to happen in the future. Fear. Fear. So I want to suggest that these are the big four that we need to learn to relate to. Sadness, desire, anger, and fear. As a subset of these four, a subset of anger, it, we sometimes direct that anger toward ourselves as self-judgment. And so that would become, I would say, a fifth major one that we need to relate to. I think we're going to have talks on a number of these emotions. So because of time, I'm not going to go into them in a lot of detail. But let's look at each of them just briefly. Let's take desire for an example. Come into retreat. There are many things that have been pleasant in your life that you don't have here. 
contact with friends, the food of your choice, going out to a movie, intimacy with your partner, the comfortable chair you sit in at home. And there's often a sense of wanting for those things. Very, very common that that arises. So let's look at the quality, sort of the psychology of desire. There's a payoff for us in bringing up those images. Here we are in this very kind of stark, austere, we might say ascetic setting. And we recollect something really comfortable or juicy or sweet about our home life. What's the impact in the mind of that? Kind of pleasurable, isn't it? It gives you a sweet hit for a moment. <laughs> but take a look at the other quality that comes with it. There's a comfort in the image, but at the same time, there's this realization, it's not here now. It isn't real. It's only a memory. That's not the same as the real thing. So along with the, the sweetness or the comfort comes this yearning. And that's the essence of desire. We're unsatisfied because we don't have it now. So desire is always this bittersweet experience and it cannot be satisfying. If you look closely and feel it in your body and your mind, you'll feel the dissatisfaction of it. This is the kind of quality of thirst that's in the craving that the Buddha pointed to. It's always unsatisfying. Because we never want something we already have. You ever wanted a hand at the end of your arm? <laughs> a nose in the middle of your face? No, that would be way too easy. We always want what we don't have. So take a look. When desire is present in the body, what's the feeling of it? I notice it often in relationship to um, meditative states here. The wanting for me on retreat is often about uh, states of meditation. I notice it as a kind of leaning forward, trying to make calm happen, trying to produce concentration. So I start to tune into that tension in the body, and that alerts me. Then I might notice, oh, my thoughts had been about a particular sitting that I wanted to recreate. So then that yearning quality of the mind. The storyline in desire is something like, if I had that, I would be happy. So it's a, basic, a basis of happiness if I had it. If that concentration came back, then I'd be happy. Of course, what we don't look at is that object is impermanent. Either the object will fade or our delight in it will fade one or the other. Okay, we talked, we talked quite a lot about anger. I just want to mention a couple of things that um, the tradition says about anger. We feel this um, self-righteous indignation that we are in the right and the other person is in the wrong, and so we blame them. There is in the quality of anger usually an aspect of what we'd call ill will. That is, because we're suffering on account of their action, we would like them to suffer. This is the opposite of metta. Metta is goodwill. We'd like them to feel good. But with anger, the quality intrinsic in it usually is ill will. Now think about that. Can you take responsibility for that? Could you say out loud to yourself, yeah, I'd really like that person to suffer. <laughs> I can't wait to see them hurting. I would really enjoy that. That state of mind is bordering on what we would call in Buddhism cruelty. Cruelty is the actual enjoyment of someone suffering, and it's the opposite of compassion. We may feel it's okay to be angry with somebody. It's okay to feel you know, a little bit of ill will, but then you realize it's right next door to cruelty. 
Can you feel good about being a cruel meditator? That's a hard one for me. So looking at that was a strong encouragement for me to let go of anger. The other strong encouragement is feeling in the body, feeling in the mind that burning quality with anger and realizing the pain it causes us. In the tradition, it's said that anger is like picking up a hot coal and wanting to throw it at someone. But before we can throw it, we have to pick it up, and then we get burned. In a situation like this, where we're restraining our speech, we're restraining our bodily action, generally we're the only one who suffers with anger. So that became for me the strongest encouragement to let go. I simply didn't want to suffer with it. The other analogy that's used is that said that anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to fall sick. Doesn't work. So, um, desire, anger, sadness. In sadness, we have had something beautiful and lovely in the past. It's not with us, and there's a sense of loss. Feeling it in the body, there's a kind of heaviness, a weightiness, often a heaviness in the heart area. And the mood, I probably don't need to tell you, is just kind of a glum, dark, uh, hopeless kind of mood. The thoughts dwell on the fact that it's the thing that we loved is not with us anymore. And the storyline I, I see in sadness is something like, I can't be happy because I've lost it or because I don't have it. So all our, our well-being really depended on that thing, that person, that experience, whatever it was. Sadness can feel so pervasive that we're often afraid to open to it, as though if I open to the degree of sadness that's with me, I'll drown. It will be too much. And so we hold ourselves back from really feeling it directly. But this worry about drowning is just another belief, just another thought that we have told ourselves. We need to open to it little by little because it's the opening that lets it come, come up and in the coming up present itself and pass. So we're not going to clear sadness out with one or two looks, but touching it a little bit, moving away, touching into it a little bit, moving away, generating all the wholesome qualities that come through meditation, loving kindness and mindfulness and wisdom, those will start to lift the sadness up and out. And the last of the uh, four main emotions is the quality of fear. Fear has a special place in my heart because it was my biggest hindrance for years in practice. I worked with it a lot. I became very familiar with it. And I so appreciate all the lessons that it taught me. You read things like these defilements are the very food that wisdom grows on. The defilements, as we work with them, are said to be the manure for bodhi, the nourishment for enlightenment. As we uh, learn how, how to relate to them in our life. And in the beginning, I thought that was all hokum. I thought that was teachers just trying to cheer me up. But as I look back at my own experience of working with fear, I appreciate how much I grow, I've grown from that and what it taught me. If you learn one of these emotions thoroughly, you'll understand how all the others work too because all their mechanisms are similar. So for myself with fear, I came into my retreat, I started to feel fear, and I really didn't want it to happen. I was very resistant to that experience. I thought something had gone way off track if I was feeling fear. I was supposed to be feeling more happiness, and here I was feeling more afraid. But I took the encouragement of my teachers to investigate it, and I started to explore it in the body. It was so helpful to find that I could ground my attention in the body at a time when I was feeling afraid, because otherwise I was disconnected. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to turn to. So my teachers told me to ground the attention in the body. 
And there I found shakiness and trembling and lightness that gave me no sense of groundedness or security. And I had to ask myself, can I be with this? Can I open to it? And I looked a little at the storyline of fear. And the storyline in fear seems to be something like, well, this moment may be bearable, but the next moment isn't going to be. Watch out. So I just came back into this present moment. Can I bear this bodily feeling? Can I bear it? And I could. I could bear that shakiness. I could bear that trembling. So then I had to look in the mind. What's the mood or tone or color of fear in the mind? What does that feel like? So I turned the attention toward the mind, and it was really hard to get to because fear itself is a wanting to flee. So as I got close to that thing, it was like, get away. I get close to it again, it was, get away. So I had a very hard time actually connecting with the, with the mind's nature of fear. But because of the wonderful support of samadhi and the stability that it gave, I was able to touch it, touch it, touch it. And I asked, can I bear that? And I could. I could learn to bear the mental tone. And then I would look at the thoughts that projected into the future and let go of those. So I came more and more just to bear the momentary experience of fear. And I found out it was a paper tiger. There was nothing but that experience of shakiness and wanting to flee. Shakiness and wanting to flee. So I just became more and more comfortable with it over time. When I did, it lost a lot of its power over me. The more I could open to it, the less it tended to have me in its grip. So the invitation is there whenever these difficult states are present to open to them with acceptance. It takes a lot of courage, but this is where we find courage in our practice. I found levels of bravery I had no idea existed in me. And I know all of you are finding the same thing day after day as you commit with perseverance and diligence to meeting every experience that arises. Your courage is uh, developing moment after moment. I found that I had the capacity to understand. In the middle of the most difficult experiences, some of the most difficult experiences in my life, I could bring out qualities of wisdom. And the wisdom could understand the problem. And through understanding the problem thoroughly enough, it ceased to be a problem because I could see how it was put together. It was just another mechanism. And once I could let it be, it would come and it would go. And that's what we finally understand about these difficult emotions. They aren't problems in themselves. They are not a problem. They come, they dance, and they go. What just happened? What was that dance? Oh, it's just the weather system. We really come to trust that awareness, mindfulness, and wisdom have the capacity to receive them, to hold them, to understand them with perspective, and not to be shaken by them. So this becomes our practice. It's not that we awaken after we've gotten rid of these things. We awaken in the middle of them. And the most uh, powerful qualities of mind can be brought out directly in relationship to these states. This is transformative. We start to gain a confidence in our mind, a confidence in our understanding, a confidence in our practice that we can handle whatever the heart and mind throw up at us. Wisdom cannot be overthrown when it's strong enough. So I'd just like to close with a quotation from the uh, Tibetan tradition. This is called The Four Blessings of Gampopa. It's uh, considered a supplication. Uh, To whom the supplication is made is for your own uh, decision. It could be considered to the Dharma, to uh, the Buddha, to a special being like the Dalai Lama, to your own wisdom mind, however you'd like to interpret it. 
grant your blessings so that my mind follows the Dharma. Grant your blessings so that my Dharma practice becomes the path. Grant your blessings so that the path clarifies confusion. Grant your blessings so that confusion dawns as wisdom. So let's just sit for a minute together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.